Let me open in prayer this morning. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Your word is precious. Your word comes to us from you. You've talked to us in a language we can understand. You've given your word so that we could study it, so that we could read it, so that we could believe what it teaches, so that we could live by your commands. We're thankful for it, Lord. Without it, we would be lost. We would be stumbling around in a dark world. Your word is precious to us. So help us this morning to study it well, to be good theologians, to rightly, accurately handle the word of truth. Be with us as we study theology. Amen. Well, if you've read along with us in biblical doctrine, I'm pretty much covering exactly what the reading was, hopefully in some more detail and opening up some things. But I was asked a while back if I'm going to be teaching exactly on what the book teaches, and it won't be exact. Some, some weeks I'll add a lot more than what you get. Some weeks I'll skip things in the book that you read, depending on what section it is. But pretty much the schedule I gave you for the reading is the schedule we'll follow in the class, unless I get behind. And then I have the ability to get behind as long as I catch up by the end of the semester, which is near the end of January. So today we're talking about a topic. If you've been around for the last couple of years, you've heard this topic, especially if you've been in the men's leadership and been around the last couple of years, general and special revelation. And when I was preaching through Romans 1, we touched on this quite a bit. And then last year in the men's leadership, we studied bibliology. And so we spent some time on this subject. It's important to know what these two words, these two concepts mean. Because if we get this wrong, well, we're going to end up very off the mark when it comes to Christianity. We're going to invent a lot of bad theology. In fact, a lot of bad theology and bad practice has come from general, supposed general revelation. And I'll tell you how that works here in a moment. But there's two, ta- two types of ways that God has revealed things to us. Two major categories, general and special revelation. So this is our first topic under bibliology. What is bibliology? Here's your quiz question. Bibliology is the study of the Bible. That's an easy one, right? Pick up a book like this in the bookstore. There's your book giveaway. I need some more books. I need to go to a conference to get lots of free books to give away. I do book giveaways often if if you're just starting with us here. Just not lately for some reason. General and special revelation is the first topic under bibliology. We have to determine what it is we're talking about when we're studying the Bible. And so let's focus first of all on general revelation, sometimes called natural revelation. I like natural, the term better, because it kind of helps us understand what this is. This is the universal, that means everyone, self-disclosure of God by which he makes himself known to all people everywhere. So this is the knowledge God gives to everyone. Not just his people, not just his church, not just Israel, not just the elect. This is everybody. It's general, meaning it's unrestricted. It goes out to everyone. It's it's nonverbal. This is not God speaking to other people. These are things that he puts in the universe. And they tell us something about God. They tell us about his existence, that he is real that he exists, that he created. They tell us about his perfections. They tell us that God is good because we have children and food and sometimes rain and we have air conditioning and we, you know, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you have often an income, a job, a family, a house, all kinds of things. You have good times with friends and family. That goodness can't just pop out of thin air. And so we can know by those things that God is good. 
and on down with morality, righteousness, justice, and so on. And he works to all people. He, he discloses his works to all people through nature, through the conscience, and through history. So nature would be everything that's created, everything that's created. Who created that? The intelligent design movement is all about trying to prove to people that there is a creator. Now, I don't think it goes far enough. We need to get to the who is the creator, the God of the Bible, but it points in the right direction. It's a good check on a lot of evolutionary theory, and it is looking at how these intricate patterns in scientific study that are discovered, how can they just suddenly come to pass out of nothing? How can you get the eyeball? How can you get this woodpecker's tongue that's like this long, but it rolls up around his brain and, and his skull? That doesn't just evolve. That was created. And so that's nature. The fact that there's trees and grass and clouds and rain. And the, the universe isn't just falling apart right now at this second. Just disappearing from existence. There's an order to it. Also the conscience. People know right from wrong. You knew right from wrong before you ever heard of Christianity or the Bible. You knew right from wrong. Even if you were in the middle of nowhere, you know, people throw out this question, right? What about the guy on an island? In the jungle. I don't know how there's an island in the jungle, but maybe in the lake, in the middle of Africa, in the jungle, there's this guy on an island. Why not put him underground in a cave, in the dark, with nobody around? Is he guilty? Is he going to hell? Because he's never, ever, ever heard of Christ. Why do people go to hell? We're not, we're not to that doctrine yet of soteriology, but do people go to hell just because they haven't heard of Christ? Or do they go to hell for what? Sin. We have a conscience. We know right from wrong. Even the guy in the middle of the jungle on an island, 100 feet underground in a cave, is still a sinner and sins in his own mind, even if he has no one to talk to. So hell is a punishment for sin. If someone denies Christ, that's a sin. If they hear the gospel and deny it, that's a, that's a huge sin. But even if they've never heard, they're still sinning against conscience and against this natural revelation. And also throughout history. Throughout history, God has done things that reveal to us that he exists. There have been things that have occurred that are only explainable by a creator who's directing things towards a purpose. And we see a lot of that in the Bible, even though Bible is a different kind of revelation that we'll get to. So where's this at in the Bible? Well, we're going to look at some of these passages here. Romans 19 is the big one, and Romans 1 and 2. So although general revelation is a genuine form of divine revelation. That is God revealing something to us. We cannot, and this guy has it right here, this quote, it's impossible to construct an authoritative theology on material that is not propositional in content and form. So here's what that means. There's a tree. What does that teach us about God? Y'all, y'all throw me some really bad reason from there's a tree to some kind of religion. How would you do that? It's been done in the past, so we're brothers. Yeah, brother tree. You better go give the tree a hug. You see how easy that is? Yeah, God created that tree. That proves God exists because who else created it? But where do we go from there? We go to false religion. If we try to reason something about God and salvation and sin and man, people have worshipped trees. People have worshipped created things. Crocodiles, bugs, scarab beetles, a dung beetle. People worship dung beetles. Isn't that amazing? How does that happen? Well, because they just looked to divine natural revelation, general revelation, and came up with their own theology. 
And that's every other religion, really. It, sometimes they take a little Bible and mix general revelation. But often it's someone either reasoning from creation or saying God spoke to them directly. Mix a little Bible in, you got your own religion. So we have to be very careful. There's a lot of talk out there of natural theology built on natural revelation. I don't like that term. I don't think it's a good way to go. There are things we can know about God. There are theological truths that are found in general revelation. Obviously, the Bible says that, but we can only go so far, which is God created and something about God's perfections, and we have a conscience and how he's working through history. But if you try to build a religion on that, you're going to end up with every kind of false religion out there. That's why we have the Bible. That's why he gave the Bible. So let's look at these. Psalm 19, it has both general, which we're looking at now, and special revelation. Both of these are contrasted right here, or I should say they're set side by side. So go to Psalm 19 in your Bibles, and we're going to see this. This is the classic text. The first six verses tell of the natural general revelation. And then the last section here, the last half, is about special revelation. God's word. God himself speaking directly to his people. That's special. But general goes out to everyone. So Psalm 19, David writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The sky, outer space, the planets, the stars, the sun, the moon. That tells us of the glory of God. He created all that. The expanse is declaring the work of his hands. As we look at these things, that shows us he created it. Day to day pours forth speech. So as the sun moves around and the moon goes around and all these planets are moving and stars are moving, that tells us that there's a creator. Night to night reveals something to us. It's as if God was speaking, even though it's not his direct speech here. It's a metaphor. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So you can't say, the sky spoke to me. The tree spoke to me. No, but in a sense, they are telling us something. They are teaching us something. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Everyone knows this. Their utterances to the end of the world. David says, look, everybody can see the sky. Everyone can see what's created. And that tells of the glory of God. It says that in them, he has placed a tent for the sun. So the sun has a, a specific movement that it makes and it comes through the heavens and, and everything else seems to move at a different pace than the sun. And that's, this tent is a bridegroom. Or the sun is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It's rising us from one end of the heavens and a circuit to the other end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about this. He says, only God could make the sun take its course like that. Only God sets Everything in motion here, David is saying. But now he switches to a different kind of revelation. Look at verse 7. The law of Yahweh is perfect. The law, that's commands. That's telling us what to do to obey God. These restore the soul. So they don't just talk about God's glory and tell us that he's creator. But they restore the soul. They have a spiritual effect on you that's more than just knowing God exists. The testimony of Yahweh is, is sure. It makes wise the simple. The simple-minded person, the foolish person, the sinner can be wisened up by looking to God's word. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. They make your heart glad. They do something to your soul. 
The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. It enables you to see the way things really are. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. You can be warned by Scripture. The tree doesn't warn you of any bad theology. The tree is just the tree. But the, the Scripture, special revelation, warns us. And keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. So it, it's, it helps us discern our errors. And, and we come to God and confess those, those sins. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. You know, the grass in the sky doesn't tell me when I've sinned. God's word tells me when I've sinned. It's clear about that. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. That's a hymn we sing, right? My rock, my redeemer. Now look at the top again. What's the name for God at the top, in the top section? The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Now, if you have the LSB, the bottom section, the law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the precepts of Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenant name of God, and it's often used when he's speaking to his people. And he gives special revelation to his people. But to the whole world, God is a general term. God is a general term for just the fact that he reigns, he is majestic, he created. Everyone knows that there is a God. Not everyone has a relationship with Yahweh. So there is a difference. Romans 1.19. Let's go now to the New Testament. This again is very clear that there is a knowledge that goes out to the whole world. A revelation from God. He himself is the one making sure that they hear this. And not literally hearing his voice. But they, they hear it through what's being taught. One nineteen. So the wrath of God in 118 is revealed. The wrath of God is coming from heaven against all sin, ungodliness, unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. There's a truth and they suppress it. The truth is God is holy. God is just. The truth is we should worship God. We should thank God. Even if we've never picked up a Bible, we should do these things because we know God exists. We know he's holy. And men push it down like a beach ball trying to be pushed underwater. It just keeps coming back up and they keep pushing it back down. Why? Because that which is known about God, verse 19, is evident within them. They know something about God. He's talking here about the whole world, Gentiles in particular here. They know something for God made it evident to them. Well, I'm not sure if that guy who's never heard the gospel knows there is a God. Well, the Bible says they do know there is a God. And God made sure they knew that he is a creator, that he is there. God made it evident to them. And Paul goes on to explain this. For since the creation of the world, his, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Not something that really has to be investigated. Even before the scientific method was used, people could observe things and reckon and realize there is a God. Being understood through what has been made. That's creation. That's the universe. So that they're without excuse. They have no excuse. They can't say, I never understood that there was a God. So really, this is saying there's no true atheist. People who are atheists are just those who resist God. Those who know there's a God and they want to try to tell everybody there's not a God. They're just resisting him. It's not like they don't 
believe there's a God. They do deep down. They're just what we call practical atheists. They're trying to live out some life, usually a life of sin, and they don't want to be judged for it. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, all the Gentiles, all the people who've never had a Bible in their hands knew God, they did not glorify him as God. So here's their sin. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. Really, it's probably there is, no, it's glorifying, give thanks. That's right. If your, your translation might say something different. But they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish heart was dark and professing to be wise, they became fools. They could philosophize from their mind on all these things about God, but they never got it right. They thought they were wise, but they were really fools. They exchanged this glory of the incorruptible God for an image and the likeness of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They worshipped dung beetles. They worshipped fish heads. They worshipped alligators. They worshipped hippopotamus. They worshipped all kinds of animals. For what? Because they set that aside. They knew God existed and they said, we don't like that God. We're convicted that that God is a God that might judge us. Let's create a God we can handle. This God of wood, this God of stone, this God of gold and silver. We can, we can create him the way we want. And then we can get everybody to throw in their money to the pot. And then the priest can eat off of that and so on and so on. So it says God gives them over to all these things, including homosexuality, as a result of this exchange that happened. Let's go now to Romans 2.14. What about the conscience? Paul says in Romans 2.14, For when Gentiles do not have the law, so they don't have the Mosaic law. We would just say today, people who don't have the Bible, they naturally do the things of the law. How can unchristian societies still have a law against murder? Well, Paul says they may not have God's law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. They have a law. They have a law to themselves. They have a law because they know, because God put it in them, what is right and what is wrong. Look at verse 15. In that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts. They seem to do things that line up with the Ten Commandments sometimes. They seem to have laws in their culture. Ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt. They had laws on the books. The Code of Hammurabi. They have laws that say this is wrong. Taking people's money and taking, stealing people's possessions and their wife and all of these things, murder, they're wrong. They demonstrate that by having these laws and acting accordingly. Their conscience bearing witness on their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So your conscience is your radar. It's, it's like your, your little needle that points you in the right direction. You can have a seared conscience. The unbeliever does often have a seared conscience. They sin so much that they ignore their conscience and it becomes scarred. It becomes seared. But the conscience is supposed to work to tell you what's right and wrong. And this conscience will bear witness against these Gentiles in the last day. Even if they've never heard of Christ or read the Bible, on judgment day, God will say, you knew that was wrong and yet you still did it. Because their conscience told them it was wrong. And their thoughts, their thoughts will try to defend and they will also obviously accuse because there's such a thing as sinful thoughts. Let's go to Acts 14, 17. So this is so clear that it can be preached to Gentiles as well. So Paul's here talking about God and what he's done 
for Gentiles, for unbelievers. And it says, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. God made sure everyone knew who existed. How? And that he did good and gave you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. God left a witness for himself over all the earth because people celebrate. They have harvest season. They have food to eat. They have rain that comes down on the crops. This comes from God. Rains come from heaven. He did good to them. And so that's one way to talk to an unbeliever. Is to say, you know, look, you know there's a God. Look at what he's done for you in your life. He's given you all these things up until this point. Now he's calling you to repent and turn to Christ. Matthew 5.45, Jesus says something similar. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So even God shows a kind of love to his enemies. It's not saving love. We'll look today in the sermon and we'll mention God saying, Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. That's saving love. This is a, a common grace love. It says, God loves his enemies for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even the person who says they're an atheist can only draw in breath, can only eat, can only sit on a chair that doesn't fall apart and disintegrate into disorderly chaos because there is a God. He gives to both the evil and the good. Not eternally, but in this life. So that's called providence. So we have general revelation mentioned in Psalm 19, the first part. We have this knowledge of God mentioned in Romans 1. That's general revelation. We have the conscience in Romans 2 and providence, or what we might say is the history as we look back and see what God has done in the past for everyone, including us individually or nations, how he's brought things about. We could go on. We're not going to have time to go through all of these, but consider the stars in the expanse of the heavens. Four times that's mentioned explicitly. The stars, the expanse, all the stars out there, which we can't really see, especially near the city. Even if you got into a dark zone and looked, you still couldn't see all the stars out there. And the Bible says over and over, that shows how great God is. What about the creatures God has made? You've read about these creatures in Job, the behemoth, the Leviathan. That's not a crocodile, right? Does a crocodile have a tail as big as the cedar of Lebanon? Does a crocodile blow out fire and smoke out of his mouth? These are massive creatures. And the whole point of Job 39, 40, and 41 is to say, look at what God has created, Job. Who are you to question me, God is saying. Leviathan's armor, the flaming fire which comes from his mouth. You know, if that's just a little crocodile, that doesn't really do much for an argument, right? God says, look at that little crocodile. It snaps its teeth. Don't get by it. No, he's saying this massive creature. People are scared to get even close to Leviathan. He says, you mess with that animal, he'll wish you hadn't. That tells us that there is a God. Here's Job 26, 14. Behold, all these wonderful things mentioned in Job, the constellations, all the things that God mentioned, these are the fringes. The fringes of his ways. What's the fringe? The very edge. Just a little bit we see of God's sovereign power. 
and how only with a whisper of a word do we hear of him, Job says, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? You can't even understand the thunder and what that means. We think we do. We think today we have all this science and the weatherman. They don't really understand a lot of things. It's supposed to rain all the time. It goes right around my house. The other day, it rained just on my house and nowhere else around here. Nobody saw that one coming. It made the news. It was just right over our little neighborhood. These are the fringes. And Job, you read Job and you're like, this is the majestic God. It's just the fringes. Just the edge of what we can see of God. Just very fine edges. Creation alone is enough for everyone to know God and that he is the all-powerful creator. Here's Spurgeon on general revelation. He says, the sun, moon, stars are God's traveling preachers. They're apostles upon their journey confirming those who regard the Lord and judges on circuit, condemning those who worship idols. So these things, they're kind of like preachers in that they convict the person who worships idols because they know, these people know there is a God. And they confirm for the believer. I mean, look at God's power. Once you're saved, right, you can say, wow, that's amazing. That's, that's completely amazing. What you can't do is try to convince somebody into the kingdom by saying, Oh, look at this intricate stuff of the tree. That's not why people don't believe. They, they don't believe because of their sin. You got to get to the moral issue, not try to convince them with a pile of scientific facts. If that was going to do it, it would have already done it. General Revelation. This is the Belgic Confession, one of the Reformed Confessions. It says, By creation, preservation, and government of the universe. That's providence. Which is before eyes as a most elegant book. So it's like a book, wherein all creatures, great and small, you've probably heard some hymns with that phrase, all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters, leading us to see clearly the invisible things of God, even his everlasting power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says, that would be in Romans 1. Calvin said, men cannot open their eyes without being compelled to see him. Upon his individual works, he has engraved unmistakable marks of his glory, so clear and so prominent that even unlettered and uneducated folk cannot plead the excuse of ignorance. Even if they can't read a book, they can look at creation and see there's a God. Stephen Sharnock, he wrote The Existence and Attributes of God, a big two-volume set. Every plant, he said, every atom, as well as every star at the first meeting whispers this in our ears. I have a creator. I'm a witness to a deity. Everything that the heavens are telling of the glory of God, Psalm 19. So do pagans really know about God through general revelation? Well, Aristotle says that God, unseen by any mortal nature, is to be seen by the works themselves. So even Aristotle, the great philosopher of Greece, who was not a believer in any sense, said, yeah, there's a God out there. He didn't know who this God was or have a relationship with this God in any saving way, but he said, you can see by the creation that there's a God. Cicero told his countrymen in Rome, he said, you do not see God, yet you recognize God by his works. This was commonly known in ancient times. It's only today that we make these excuses and say that the guy somewhere who's never read the Bible is going to get a free pass into heaven. It certainly doesn't say that in scripture. Early church father Tertullian said to his pagan countrymen, he said, we Christians worship one God, the one whom you all naturally know. This is in the 200s AD. He says, at whose lightnings and thunders you tremble. You know there's a God. Why are you making fun of us as Christians? We're worshiping the God that created all these things that you're trembling at. 
They also spoke of the moral laws. Socrates said veneration of good, honoring parents, avoiding sexual abuse of children, and returning good to those who do one good as these laws on the heart. So he says there's some laws we have in the heart, and we do these things that are good. Aristotle thought that some people were so virtuous, they did not need any laws, for they are themselves a law. This is almost in Greek the same as what Paul says in Romans 2.14. These are a law to themselves. They, they know in their heart what is right and wrong, even if they've never read the Mosaic Law. The Stoic philosophers of Paul's day thought that living virtuously was the same as living in accord with nature. They were wrong, of course, but the sense here is they thought that nature was ordered and structured and said something about God. So the closest they could get their life to nature, the better off they would be. Now, what is the unbeliever's responsibility for and rejection of General revelation. Romans one they they're without excuse. So if they claim there is no God, and yet everything is telling of the glory of God, they're suppressing the truth. They're rejecting the obvious. That's a lie, isn't it? Isn't that what we teach our kids? You know, here's what's true, and if you say the opposite of that, that's a lie. They're without excuse. They can't stand on judgment day and say they have an excuse. Secondly, they have willfully rejected God in spite of their knowing that nature demonstrates his eternal existence. If someone knows something, but they're rejecting it, they're choosing to do that. That's willful. They're having to work at that. You've got to work to push the beach ball down in the pool, right? Otherwise, it's just going to float up. They're trying their hardest. Now, of course, they don't suppress the truth, but that's what they're working on. still happening today. You know, man's not a man. Woman's not a woman. Marriage isn't marriage. God's not God. Christianity's whatever we want it to be. There's all kinds of suppression of truth going around. Really, Christianity is about telling the truth. We're, we're truth tellers. We have to tell things the way they are, even if people don't like it. Even if they hate us, we have to tell things the way they are. Also, man's conscience makes him morally accountable. He's accountable. We're all accountable for not living in accord with the ultimate standard of right and wrong. Even without special revelation, man will be judged for moral failure. There's no excuse. This is really pointing back to what I just said in number one. There's no excuse. And number four, God has already begun to judge them by giving them up to the vilest degradation. So there's already a judgment occurring. It's not the final judgment. It's not the great white throne judgment. It's not the lake of fire judgment. Those are to come. This is a judgment of giving a person over and people over to their sins. This is, oh, you're rejecting me and you want to continue to reject me and run into your sin. There's going to be consequences. So this is God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. It says that over and over in Romans 1. Let's talk about its limits. Can a person be saved by general revelation? A lot of people say yes. That's how they fit the Muslims and the Jews into many religions. Universalists say everybody will be saved. The problem is it's not verbal. It's nonverbal. It's creation. Only through the special revelation, God's word, does the Holy Spirit convict. Does the Holy Spirit regenerate? The word is showing us how we obtain righteousness. That's Paul's whole purpose in writing Romans. To show people, to reveal the righteousness of God in Christ. Secondly, the limit is its meaning is twisted. Because of total depravity, because we're all born with depraved minds, if we try to reason from creation to come up with our own belief system, you know what you end up with? 
every other religion. Hinduism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and so on. Thirdly, man is willfully blind because of his depravity. So that's different than totally depraved. Depraved means that your desire is to sin. Your want is to sin. That you will sin because we have inherited Adam's sin nature. But also Satan is working to blind us. So you put a person who doesn't have the spirit and you say, okay, you have a totally depraved mind. You have Satan blinding you. Now go come up with a way to get to God. You end up with every other religion around the world. Number four, it does not contain salvific truth. Where's the gospel in creation? Now I've heard people try to argue this, right? They'll say, well, you know, I found a three-leaf clover on the ground and Trinity, right? You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the three leaves. No. No one would have come up with that before the Bible was handed out. Well, there's a Virgo, you know, in the sky and the stars passed and maybe the comet and Jesus. No. The Greeks looked at the stars. The Babylonians looked at the stars. They never came up with anything close to the gospel. They said those were gods up there or demigods who had gone up into the sky. So it's not going to work. You can't say, well, you know, the tree has three branches. That's the Trinity. And there's a road and I went down this road and it looked natural and it led me to. No, it doesn't work. Nothing like that works. We need the word. And Paul's going to make a big case for that in Romans 10. We'll get there in a few weeks or months in Romans. Here's Calvin. With every person is a sense of deity. Thus knowledge of God is possessed by everyone. Just summarizing here this doctrine. All people have an innate knowledge of God and his righteous moral law. Total depravity obscures the natural revelation of God. If the unbeliever is to be converted, God must work through both special revelation and the testimony of the Spirit. So you have God's word. You have the Spirit changing the heart to believe God's word. That's how it works. You might say, well, I don't remember a time when I read a verse or I wasn't in church. You had to have known the Bible in some fashion. And then the Spirit changed your heart to believe it. You don't have to know the whole Bible. It could have just been one verse, one phrase. There are many ways the Bible comes into our life that people hear it. Calvin believed in the comprehensiveness of Revelation. Here's a later theologian, John Frame, who's a theologian today. He said, Calvin's view of divine sovereignty enables him for the first time clearly to declare all things wholly revelational of God. All things reveal God. Since God's plan alone determines nature, history, and individual life, God's clearly revealed in all these areas. All facts are evidence for God, not merely the facts of causality, teleology, etc. So we can't just say, well, one thing caused another. I mean, the tree's there because man planted the tree. Okay, who made man? Well, the parents. Well, let's go all the way back to Adam. Who made Adam? Well, he evolved. Well, where did Adam evolve from? Well, a, a monkey. I don't buy that, but where did the monkey come from? Well, all this. And then you get down to nothing. Basically, it's a God of their own making. A God of their own making created something out of nothing. Now, let's talk about special revelation. So that's general natural revelation that we just discussed. Now we're getting down to special or particular. This is the personal and mostly verbal disclosing of God's existence, his perfections, and his works by supernatural means. To particular selected persons, this is a long definition, but it's very precise, theological, for various purposes, including, after the fall, bringing people to be saved and worship him aright. So that's the eventual goal of special revelation, to save people, to tell them how to worship him. We could add to be sanctified, 
to grow, to be edified. And so before Christ's second coming, this final canonical special revelation consists of Jesus Christ and the words of the Bible. Let's go to Revelation 22. This is the last book in the Bible. No one debates really that that's anywhere considered Christian. But it's the last book. And then the last section of the last book says this. I bear witness to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of his prophecy, God will take away from his part, from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who bears witness to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So this is it. This is God's revelation right here to us until Christ comes back. And if you try to add to it, well, there's some strong warnings there that you need to read. This is God's special revelation. Now, there are other types of special revelation that came before this and even during the the time in the New Testament. But by the time we get to the end of Revelation, this is it. This is God showing us, telling us exactly what we need to know for salvation and sanctification. Now, there are previous ones in the Bible. Theophanies, where God just shows up and speaks. We see that a lot in the Old Testament, some in the New. The angel of, I need to change that, the angel of Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh, just the other night in our Joshua Bible study, we saw this majestic person who's called the commander of the hosts of Yahweh. And I argued that that's the angel of Yahweh. That's the pre-incarnate Christ. That's a Christophany. So that's special revelation because God himself is speaking directly to his people. Audible speech. Moses just hears God. Joshua just hears God. God speaks out loud at Jesus' baptism from the heavens. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Those are special revelations. That's not the tree speaking. That's God speaking directly. Even the burning bush. It says the angel of Yahweh was in the fire of the burning bush. Yahweh was speaking. Miraculous works. That's a type of special revelation. That's why we've got to be careful. And we'll come to this a little bit later with the word miracle. Signs, powers, and wonders are the three terms the Bible uses. We've combined all that to say miracle. And then we call God's providence a miracle. And we're trying to honor God with that, but it gets kind of mushy because then everything becomes a miraculous thing. So signs, powers, and wonders, and we could add maybe, I would add conversion, change of heart, take that dead heart out, put the living heart in, give us the Holy Spirit. But in the Bible, miraculous works have a very specific purpose to show us, to teach us something about God. That's not the natural created order of things. It's something special. Angels also give speech that God sends them with. The angel is a messenger, so they give the message of God. The Urim and the Thummim. Not quite sure what those were. Probably a a red stone and a white stone with some Hebrew or whatever Paleo-Hebrew letters on there. That's what the high priest would draw out, and it would be a way to determine the will of God when he wasn't speaking directly. In the New Testament, we see the lot happening in Acts. They're trying to choose somebody to replace Judas. They do it by lot. Drawing straws is what we did as a kid. We're not supposed to do this as Christians. That was just for a time. And so don't, you know, well, let's see, where should I move? There it says, right there, Jerusalem. I'm going. That's presuming upon God. Just read the Bible. Use the brain that he gave you to reason from scripture about making good choices in your life. 
We're not to use the lot or any other, some kind of basically magic, or today it would just be chance a lot of times. Some Christians are getting into cards and magic and things like that. That's closer to the second one here, dreams, visions, and prophecy. God gave dreams, he gave visions, he gave prophecy. We don't teach that he does that today. Uh, It's called cessationism. We'll get into that later. Stay in systematic theology for a few semesters. We'll cover all this. Those stopped with the New Testament. The prophets and the apostles were the foundation of the church. You don't lay the foundation over and over. You lay it once. Jesus Christ himself is the revelation. He's the word of God. Capital W, the word of God. In these last days, he has spoke to us through his son. Before he spoke through the prophets, the author of Hebrews says, Today he speaks through his son. Those words have been, not every single one, but the ones we need have been recorded in scripture. And then the written word of God. So I'm just going to say you're not having theophanies the angel of Yahweh speaking to you, hearing directly from God, miraculous works in the sense of signs, powers, and wonders, right? Uh, Angels coming down to visit Urim and Thummim. Uh, Hopefully you're not messing with that or the lot. Dreams and visions and prophecy. A lot of people claim that they do that, but it never matches the things we see in scripture necessarily. The Lord Jesus is in heaven sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's with us spiritually, but not still sending down revelation. So we're left with the written word of God. That's why we emphasize it. That's why we focus on it. That's why we preach it. Yeah, just a quick comment. Justin Peters did a little five-minute video on that. If you look up Justin Peters, Muslim Dreams of Jesus, he, he does a great job there, I think, going through that and kind of saying, how vague some of these stories are and where some of these people end up. There's also a longer article somewhere on the internet. I think it's Southern View Chapel that goes into great length trying to explain how these stories don't really seem to be credible and explaining the scriptural backing. So probably we'll get to that when we get to charismatic gifts. But Justin Peters, I think it's about five minutes. And yeah, one of the things I've I've heard a lot on that is it's always second or third hand, but we won't go too far into that. I don't think it's Jesus directly speaking, but that's a good point. You know, I had a, a vivid dream and there was somebody from history that died long before I lived. Recently, I had this dream that I was sitting right beside him in a theater. And I was like, this was real until I woke up. Okay, we did Psalm 19. Let's talk about inspiration for the next 10 minutes. This is where I wanted to get to. So God's special revelation, we have it today in his word. It doesn't mean that everything he ever spoke is here, right? We, we know that Jesus said a lot of things that were not written down. God has spoken to his prophets in times past that we don't have everything written down. We have exactly what he wanted us to have and to keep over time. So the question now becomes, who wrote that? Did man write it? Did God write it? And how does that play together? So let's define it. Here's according to the textbook that we've been reading. Inspiration. It's the act of the Holy Spirit upon the biblical writers that ensured that what they wrote was the Word of God. So that's an important definition. It's God acting on the biblical writers to ensure they write His Word. Beaky and Smalley, this is a larger systematic theology that we have in the bookstore, volume 1. The work of the Holy Spirit to produce the Bible through human authors so that it is God's Word just as surely as the breath of our mouths produce our own words. So how does that work, that the human authors could write God's word? Well, there's four views. There's always got to be lots of views on these things, right? Three are wrong and one is correct. So let's look at the wrong ones. 
The dictation theory. This is what most of us think when we get saved. We think, well, God just spoke out loud and they were over there with a pen writing everything down. That's what I thought for a long time as a baby Christian. This is the theory that all the authors of Scripture mechanically wrote down word for word what God told them to write verbatim without any interaction from their own thinking abilities, etc. No, no background, no history of their own got into those letters. It's just pure dictation. So I thought this, and I'm glad I got corrected and taught well on this. Some have gone on, though, to say God is still speaking to them directly, and they're doing, what's that called? What's that called, Chris, where they're over here writing with their eyes closed? And automatic writing, right? The pen just moves, and then you look down, and you have this book called Jesus Calling, and you say, look, that's literally what she says in the original introduction. God, Jesus spoke these words. She wrote them down, and she's referring, her method refers back to a previous guy in the 1800s, I think it was called God calling, right? Instead of Jesus calling, something like that. It's called automatic writing. You're, you seem to be hearing and feeling the words of God and you just scratch them down. That becomes suddenly a bestseller. So that's not correct because you have evidence of the writer's personality. You have Paul not only talking about himself and writing to an actual church in time and talking about their problems in Corinth, but you have his own style. And you can look at Paul's letters and say, this is the way he uses this word. And you look at James and say, well, James sometimes uses the same word, but slightly different context. And he has certain ways that he writes. And then you get to a book like Hebrews and you're just thinking, man, this is high Greek. And first Peter is kind of common Koine Greek. And second Peter is, is very difficult to translate Greek. But again, you see patterns through each author and even in each letter, like the book of Romans. And so there must be something more than just God speaking and they write down exactly what is being said. Now, sometimes that does happen, right? God says, Moses, write these Ten Commandments on the stones, and he has to do it. He tells Jeremiah, write this. Yahweh, thus Yahweh says, the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And then the prophets write down exactly what is said to them. And then other times, Jeremiah talking. And he says, I did this, and I felt this, and I did this. And then Yahweh said. So that is in there, but it's always clear God makes sure he understands he's the one speaking there. Another one's called the partial or conceptual theory. This is neo-Orthodox in the early 1900s, mid-1900s. The neo-Orthodox came out, Karl Barth and some of those guys, and they said, look, we don't like liberalism, but we don't like you conservative Orthodox people. So we're going to come up with a new Orthodox, the neo-Orthodox. And they said God gave the authors of Scripture general ideas or impressions, and they wrote those down. In their own words. There's a lot of misspellings there, see? That's not automatic writing because there's too many misspellings and errors. God gave the authors of Scripture general ideas or impressions. They had to fill in the rest. So what that allows the neo-Orthodox to do is say, well, that verse, I don't like that verse. That was the author talking. But that other verse over here that I like, that was God talking. God's word is contained in Scripture, but not all of Scripture is God's word, they would say. The problem, Scripture repeatedly says... The whole of it is truthful, and it's all his word. We just read at the end of Revelation. It's all his word, all of it. Don't add to it. Deuteronomy says that. The first five books, don't add to the first five books of Scripture. Again, in Proverbs, it's his word. Don't add to it. Again, at the end. So at the beginning, towards the middle, and at the end. It's a constant reminder. Don't add. It's his word. He doesn't say part of it's his word. He doesn't say just a few verses. The ones you like are his word. But those ones that people don't like today in the culture, that's not God's word. No, it's all his word. The other one is the natural theory. So the dictation theory says God spoke, and then they just wrote down exactly the words he said. 
This is the opposite. This is the biblical authors were inspired in a natural sense from their own reasoning, their heart, their abilities. And God intervened, but only intervened with setting up a time and place that they could do this, for example. Or creating such beautiful creation that inspires you to write as a poet. This would be like the the poets, the transcendent poets and the romantic poets. They look at nature and they just think, oh, it's wonderful. I write these great, great poems and stories, but it's all natural. And this is, this is what most liberal Christians and theologians and scholars believe. It's all man. It's all man that wrote this. So there's mistakes everywhere and we don't have to believe it. And they pick it apart and they spend books and books trying to prove Paul didn't write Ephesians when the Ephesians starts off by saying it's written by Paul. But yet they spend, I mean, in seminary, it's ridiculous how much we have to study. And it's good because it prepares us for defending the truth. But how much you have to study about people who said the Bible wasn't written by the people the Bible was written by, like Moses. You know, five different people wrote the Pentateuch, not Moses, they say, on and on. So it's good we learn those things to defend the truth, but man, it's just tons of paper and ink and books have been written trying to disprove that the Bible is inspired. So Bible claims divine authorship. You'll see that as we go. So what's the right view? Verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal plenary inspiration. God through his spirit breathed out every word penned by the human authors in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. Very important. You got to get all 66 books in there, but not more than 66. The Catholics would say, and the Eastern Orthodox would say, there's more that God inspired. The breathed out is important. That comes from the Bible. Human authors penned it. And this is the original document. So if somebody messes up the Bible later, we can't then say, well, that's, that's inspired. I mean, we have everything we need in the Bible today. But textual criticism is a, a more advanced topic that we don't have time for in this class at all, Derek. That's a special class. We'll have to have a guest speaker come and do that. So verbal means the words and the syntax. Because the liberals will say, well, it's inspired, but not every single word. Well, Jesus actually argues from one word in Greek, I am. Two words, I am in Greek, I think. You could say it in one word, but it's two words when he says it. Sometimes it's a verb tense, right? God is the God of Abraham. What's that mean? Abraham has been dead for thousands of years. Abraham must still be alive somewhere with God. That's the argument for the resurrection. Plenary means all of it. So every single word and all of it. You can't throw out anything because that's the big issue. If you don't want to obey the Bible, if you don't want to believe it, what you do is you try to pick it apart and throw out verses you don't like and say, well, you know, that was just a cultural verse when Paul said that a woman can't be a pastor. That's just cultural. And that was just in Ephesus when he wrote 1 Timothy. But today it doesn't apply because it was just cultural. Or they'll say Paul didn't write 1 Timothy. That's the more common one, right? Paul didn't write it. Somebody else wrote it. We don't have to believe them. So we don't have to listen to that verse. So what this means is that there's a dual authorship of Scripture. The one actually doing the writing are the human writers, the human authors, but the ultimate author is God. So you would expect to see common themes all throughout Scripture, common words used, common, obviously, theology that links up together, but it's different people writing it. That's actually what's so amazing about Scripture. You have 3,000 plus years, more than 3,000 years since Moses wrote, right? So you have roughly 1,400 years, 1,500 years that scripture was written, and we have thousands of years since then, 
And we can look and say, wow, God used all those different people in history to write one story from beginning to end, but he uses people in different times throughout history. He's the ultimate author. Here's the verse. I'm probably, we're just going to stop here, but this is the verse. You should memorize it. You should have your kids memorize it. If there's one verse you memorize for bibliology, this is it. There's another one that comes close in 2 Peter, but this is the verse. Somebody tells you, well, it's not the word of God. My Bible says all scripture is breathed out. God breathed. Breathed out by God. Or you, yours might say inspired. This is more literal. God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. You could take each one of those words and I could preach a whole sermon on it. All of scripture. Genesis 1. You mean that creation stuff? That's inspired by God? I thought that was a myth. You mean that stuff at the end about the new heavens and new earth? That's, that's God's word? Yeah, all of it. Every single part. The parts we don't like. The parts that are hard to read, the parts that are about election, the parts that are about total depravity, the parts that are about the atonement, the parts that are about people going to hell, the parts that are about heaven, the descriptions of heaven. Yes, it's all God's word. All scripture is God breathed. It comes from him and it has a purpose. That's where the rest of the verse goes. It's, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. If it wasn't God's word, then some of it wouldn't really be helpful for those things, right? You could just say, well, I just, I'm just going to use the New Testament because the Old Testament, there was a guy who said that a few years ago. The Old Testament is not God's word. He said, just the New Testament. Then a few years later, he said, oh, we don't need the New Testament either. Now he's saying all kinds of weird stuff. Left the faith. God breathed. Here's another one that looks at this in more detail. Last thing I'll read to you. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, Peter writes. Just as also our beloved brother Paul. So is the New Testament scripture too? Well, here's him. Peter's talking about Paul. According to the wisdom given him, that's from God. He wrote to you as also in all his letters. So Paul has all these letters. Speaking in them same things in which are some things hard to understand. So Paul's letters can be difficult which the untaught, unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Paul has these letters, their scripture, and they also distort the rest of scripture. Peter is calling Paul's letters scripture. We'll look at some other ones in the New Testament as well. But special revelation is what we need. It's what we have. It's what saves. It's what sanctifies. And we're talking today, next week, and probably the next about how God has caused it to be written by human authors. It's all God's word. It's all breathed out by him, but it's written with human hands. Lord, thank you so much for our time in class this morning. I would pray that you would impress upon us to believe these doctrines taught in scripture. The second Timothy passage is so vital, so key to understanding where the word came from, where the Bible originated. Help us to truly live that out. If we know you've breathed out your word, we must believe it. We must obey it. Help us do that, Lord, with a willing heart. Give us your mercy when we don't. Forgive us. Send us back on the right path. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.